So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 12, and going to look at verses 46 through 50. And as you turn there, I think we're all aware that we live in a contentious age and at a contentious time. And I think if there's one thing we can all agree on, it's that something is wrong. Now, you know, we live in our workout. Wages are stagnant. Deaths of despair have been rising for the first time in generations. Since the Great Depression, life expectancy is decreasing. And all of that was true before 2020. All that was true before COVID and before the unrest of the past years. And so you look and you have kind of two different ways people are processing. On the one hand, you have people who are looking at macro kind of structures and saying, look, what's wrong with our world is we have these unjust social systems and unjust social conditions that have been perpetuated. And they are uh, fueling these things. It's kind of this big picture, uh, top down. And you have others say, no, the problem is that you have things like the individual lack of responsibility and families are breaking down. And one of the things that's hard for Christians on the one hand is we can say uh, two things at the same time. Like, actually, both of those things are true. I mean, the Bible says that if the powerful oppress the powerless, you're not going to have a harmonious and peaceful society. And the Bible also says that the family is at the very root and core of what a stable, healthy, flourishing society is. It's in the family that you learn what it means to be loved and to be secure and have a positive sense of who you are. And it's in the family that you learn like how to live and how to uh, be a part of a community that uh, everything doesn't just revolve around you and you are not the center of the universe. And both of these things are true. So what we're going to talk about this morning is we're actually going to talk about Jesus' focus on the family. And now we ask, all right, well, why are we talking about this? It's because where we've come to in Matthew chapter 12. So look at Matthew chapter 12, and as I read through this, I want you to think, all right, how is this the climax to this entire section. And so the way Matthew orders his gospels, there's five major teaching blocks. And then there's uh, following the teaching blocks, there's where you see Jesus. First, you hear him. It's show and tell. You hear him telling and teaching. And then you see him doing and demonstrating. And we're coming to the end of one of the action sections where uh, we're about to move into the next great teaching block. But this whole section from 11 to 12 is all about Jesus demonstrating who he is. And chapter 11 starts out in the midst of misunderstanding, where even his friends aren't understanding what he's doing, and there's misunderstanding. And then it kind of, 11 kind of culminates in this beautiful, one of the most beautiful passages in all of literature, where Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then it moves into 12 from misunderstanding to just open conflict. And we have a series, three different cycle stories of conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. And it's conflict that becomes public. It's conflict that becomes personal. It's conflict that becomes very uh, emotional and destructive. And then we get this story. And so let's follow along and we'll kind of look. And so remember, this is the climax, the culmination of this whole section. So while he was still speaking, that's Jesus, with the crowd, his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. And someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to the one who was speaking to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister 
and mother. And so you think, All right, what, is this like a non sequitur? How does this fit? Like we have this whole section on this dramatic conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, and then it gets to the end, and it's a story about his family interrupting him. And he just doesn't let them interrupt. How is that like the culmination of this whole section? It's kind of like if like 30 or 35 years from now, we're having the, uh, the, the Ben and Cynthia retirement party as we celebrate what God has done at Trinity Lake Nona. And we say, it's been, you know, 40 years of ministry and it's been amazing. We've helped kind of create this God-centered, grace-saturated church. And we've had uh, impact in this community for generations. And people start telling stories. I'm like, do you remember way back when, when we used to meet at the elementary school? And somebody be like, elementary? Elementary school, LPE elementary, what is that? Oh, well, it's a Hobby Lobby now, but it used to be this elementary school. And we would kind of met in like benches and you had to tear up. And, did, and then somebody says, you know, the thing that I remember most, like the most meaningful, impactful sermon, the thing I'll never forget. I remember that time where little Sam, he's not little anymore, he's gigantic. But do you remember little Sam when he had his passy and in one of the sermons, he like ran up and interrupted Pastor Ben when he was preaching? Oh, that's the thing I'll never forget. And I might hear that and think, what? I mean, I'm glad you remember that, but like of all of the sermons, that's the one? Like of all of the ministry, like that's the culmination of what you'll never forget? And you read the story, it's like the culmination of this whole section is Jesus' family interrupting him while he's teaching and he doesn't let them. It's like, how is this the climax of what's going on. What's happening here? Notice some of the things. You know, in the there's three different times where he says, look, behold, look. And then it repeats this phrase, your mother, your brothers, your mother, your brothers. And then notice in verse 46, they're standing outside. Why are they not inside? Why are they not with him? Why are they not sitting at his feet? And what we're going to see here, because Matthew is all about a discipleship manual, and what it's going to teach us is that spiritual roots run deep, even deeper than biological roots. And one of the things we're going to learn is the, the, what does Jesus mean by the family? It's a remarkable statement. Here are my brothers. Here are my sisters. Here is my mother. This is my family. This is my true family. And I have to admit to a certain sense of overwhelm because as I go, normally I have eight pages of notes and that gets me exactly 30 minutes. And so if you've been around here, I mean, we're pretty good to stay punctual. And this morning I'm looking at 18 and I already cut out more than I even thought. So I think what we're going to do is this week I want to kind of hold up what is he saying the family's ideal is. And then we'll come back to it next week and how can it be redeemed? And so, because the church, I think, is probably the largest pro-family institution in the world. But the relationship between the church and the family at times can be complicated. And we've even seen this as you walk through Matthew. He says things that in his world would have shocked people. It's like in Matthew chapter 8, when somebody comes and says, Jesus, I'll follow you first. Let me go bury my dead father, which is just one of the highest duties that in the ancient world a son would have. And Jesus said, no, let the dead bury their own dead. You follow me. They would have been shocked. And then you have in Matthew chapter 10 where Jesus says, do not think I came to bring peace into the world. And you can excuse him for thinking that, seeing how his name was the Prince of Peace. He says, don't think I came to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword and set father against son, mother against daughter-in-law. You think, whoa, that's strange. And then in similar in Luke chapter 14, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and mother, 
He can't be my disciple. So what's happening here? What we see here is Jesus is illustrating the principle that there's nothing higher. Even something really good cannot be allowed to be placed over uh, our love and loyalty to him. So even for, uh, even Jesus is willing to uh, put his family in their proper place to not interrupt his work. So as we go through this, one of the things we're going to see is, you know, on the one hand, Jesus doesn't romanticize the family. He, uh, he knows that it is not less fallen than all the other uh, institutions in the world. And he knows very well that marriages can end in divorce. Parents can be cruel to their children. Children can be cruel to their parents. He doesn't, in one sense, come to praise the family. He comes to redeem it. And he comes to rightly order it. He comes to show us how to put it in its proper place. So this morning, what we're going to do is ask, all right, what is that place? And the way we're going to get there is through three different questions. We're going to say, all right, why do families matter? What is the focus of the family? And who is all in the family? So those are our three uh, different questions. Why do families matter? What is the focus of the family? And who is all in the family? And I think the connection, because one of the things, all right, how does this all connect? And one of the things I think the connection is, remember, this whole chapter started out with a controversy over how you honor the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath. And I think what's happening is ending with a declaration on how you keep the fifth commandment what it means to truly honor your father and mother. So that's kind of the context. What does it mean to really honor your father and mother? One thing's all throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus is showing us the proper way of righteousness, the proper way to fulfill the Ten Commandments. You know, God's will for your life is that you love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the Ten Commandments are a distillation of what it means to do that. And he's showing it, this is what it really means. So don't think you're obeying the law not to murder... Uh, even when you have hate filled in your heart, you're not fulfilling it. This is the way you, you fulfill it. And here, I think that's what he's getting at. So when we think about the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother so that it may go well with you all of your days, we have to keep in mind that there is always in the Bible, when it talks about the family, there's always this connection between family and society. So when it talks about honoring your father and mother so you'll live long, that doesn't mean you'll just hit, you know, 75, 85, 95, whatever you think a long life is. What it actually means, you as a group, as a people, as a society will live long. And the point is that if you don't get the family right, there's going to be a breakdown in society. It's going to break down. It will not be a safe place. It will not be a place where you can live long and flourish. A society that doesn't get the... So when society doesn't work, it's probably because the families aren't working. So here, we're going to look at that. And and you do, we do in the context, knowing, look, there's always going to be you bad families. There's always going to be difficult families. There's always going to be horrible families. But when the family doesn't work well, there's no living long in the land for any society, any community. So why do families matter? Families matter because they are the natural habitat for human flourishing. This is the natural habitat by which you grow and you flourish. This is the place you're meant to learn, to love, what it means to be loved and to love. And it's also the place you're meant to learn what it means to live. 
This is your natural habitat for flourishing. So any society that lets them unravel is going to unravel. And I think one of the great contradictions of our modern age is how the, you look at the, the energy and the effort that people can, can put to maintaining you know, natural habitats. So, for example, you know, there's a new, uh, new Disney corporate complex coming in. But just what imagine, like, in that lake over there, if they find something like the uh, Florida scrub jay. You know, if you find a Florida scrub jay nest, there's no building. And, uh, you know, you, look, you think, all right, there's a certain energy that people can have to maintain natural habitats but then don't have the same energy to maintain the natural habitats for human flourishing. Tim Keller tells a story a long time ago where he realized this, this disconnect because he was in a community where they were looking to build this, this dam and uh, they found out that in the, the river that they were going to dam up that was supposed to provide power for this, this whole area, they found uh, rare snail darters. And so there was this huge amount of energy and uh, put to, to not destroying the natural habitat of the, the snail darter. And, you know, the argument's good. You can't mess up the natural environment. We must do anything. You know, uh, our, our, our natural environments are complex organisms. And, you know, you pull the snail darter out. Who knows what could happen? And that's worth considering. It's worth thinking about. But what he noticed was the disconnect between the people who are the most energetic about preserving the natural habitat of the snail darter were also the most energetic about systematically destroying the natural habitat for humanity, destroying the family. And so you think things like, you know, uh, you know, if you're going to try to destroy one you know, one of the things they say, why do families matter? Families matter because this is the natural habitat by which we flourish. This is where you'll find what it means to live well and to love. So they matter because this is our natural habitat. And uh, so what then should the focus of the family be? It's here that you learn what it means to, to be loved. This is where you learn how to live Let's bring up this next one. Here's a, a definition of the family from Tim Keller that I really like. He says, a family is a learning community built on a covenant of lifetime loyalty. So what it is this? This is a learning community, and there's a couple pieces that it's, it's the place. This is my rendition. It's where you learn to love and to live. You know, the covenant community is where you learn, like, what love is. It's a covenant community. But in the Bible, the context for real, deep, secure, safe, attached love is the context of the covenant. So what makes you a family is that lifetime covenantal commitment. So when you say, until death do us part, and we're united in sickness or in health and poverty and wealth for richer or poorer, that that's the context for real thriving uh, families. That's where you learn what real love is. You think about, all right, what images does our culture put up that these images embody love? I was thinking about this one. This is why, you know, it's terrible to watch like a baseball game because this is, you know, I'm watching the, the commercials and I'm thinking about this in the background. Like when you see commercials that are, that are promoting like an image of romance, like what often is the image that's promoted? You say what real love is. You know, you you could be forgiven for uh, thinking that in our world, real 
Love is when you have two extremely attractive, young, rich people who can gallivant across the world with no responsibilities uh, and unlimited disposable income. That's what love is. So what love is is uh, the perpetual spring break. And you just want is that what it really is? Like, you don't often see images of real love where you have a husband who's sitting next to his wife of 65 years in a waiting room as he holds her hand and her mind is slipping into the darkness of dementia. And he says, I am not going to let you go. That's what real love is. It's that type of loyalty, that type of commitment. This is where we learn what love is. But it's also a learning community. So bring that, yeah, bring the, the thing back. It's a learning community. It's where we learn how to live. You know, one of the essential things that God gives us families is so we can learn. We teach our children what's right, what's wrong. We teach them what's important. We teach them how to make decisions. We, they have to learn that there's a moral order to the universe. And you know, we live in an age where there's, there's tension here. Because on the one hand, uh, over the last 30, 40 years, you know, one of the great villains of our world has been, you know, the patriarchy. So the, the, the patriarchy is one of these oppressive institutions that have uh, crushed people. And it's highlight, you know, patriarchal abuses where the fathers acted like they own the children and been a strong reaction against that. And one of the ways to react is, look, we have to change our whole way we view families. Parents must not try to impose their beliefs on their children. They must not tell them what's right or what's wrong. The modern view is that the job of parents is just to provide a, a arena for emotional warmth. And then what you do is you have to hand your children over to the experts to provide the, the intellectual and the, the moral uh, formation because you don't know. So you have to hand them over. And you know, the Bible actually can contradicts and goes after both of those. It says both of those things are wrong. That it's wrong to try to uh, control your children in an oppressive way, but it's also wrong to only provide an atmosphere of emotional warmth for them where they never learn what's right or what's wrong. In order to provide them a, a way of viewing the world where they, they have, can make sense of what's good and what's true and what's beautiful, what's worth living for, what's worth dying for, what do we believe in. And in one sense, you know, a lot of the, 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 the social science is coming up showing you the worst thing you can do for children is not to be too authoritarian or overbearing. The worst thing you can do is to be too, too loose, to not teach them anything. And so it is possible, you know, as children grow up and they can turn away and to reject the beliefs of their parents and the parents to feel a certain sense, well, did I fail not transmitting those values and beliefs to them? But here, I think you look, especially in Proverbs, the real failure is when you don't try and teach them anything. You just leave them unmoored. Did you, did you try? And what we see is the two things that are needed are what's needed is discipline and love. Those are the two things. That's what the family is focused on. Got to provide discipline, got to provide love. Proverbs 23, 14, you punish them with the rod and you save them from death. So it's life or death. There has to be discipline. But then also love. Colossians 3, 23, don't provoke them. Don't exasperate them. That's a word for like challenging them to a boxing match. 
I don't know if you can relate to that dynamic with your children where you challenge them to a boxing match, where it's easy to get into a battle of wills, where you're going to contest with them and show them uh, who's boss and exercising power and authority just for the, the sake of it. You know, Martin Luther said, you can't, if you spare the rod, you'll spoil the child, but don't forget to keep an apple next to the rod to reward them. And, you know, he lives in a world where you're, you're dessert, so keep an apple. Why? Because in that world, there's no processed sugar, so the apple was your dessert, the sweet, the thing you would, you would give. But these are the two things. They have to have discipline. They have to have love. And the focus on the family is meant this is the place where you learn to, to experience both of those things. And if we're honest, the kind of love that we need, the kind of love we need is one that's going to be completely accepting of us as we are, but on the other hand, will not accept our own self-destructive behavior, will not allow us to do those things, to hold both the things in tension where it completely loves and accepts us as we are, but will not allow us to live in our own self-destructive behavior. That's the love we need. And if we're honest, no one can give that perfectly. No one, even the best parents fail in one ways. Every single person in this room will have a tendency to lean either more to the, to the love side, which can get twisted into leniency, or lean to the discipline side, which can get twisted into uh, overbearing authoritarian control. All of us are going to fall off one way or another. And so every person in this room, if you think about your life, in some ways you feel let down by those who are supposed to love and teach you. And every parent in this room knows that you feel a sense of guilt, that you've, you've let those who you love down. And it's one of the beautiful things about Jesus' family that he's constructing because he is the ultimate true son who brings us into his family. And it's only here that we can find both the, the unconditional love that we need and the uh, refusal to allow us to live in our own self-destructive tendencies and behavior. We get love and we get discipline. It's where we find these things. So it's only here. So who, this last thing, kind of notice this, who is all in the family? And it's a really shocking thing. Notice what he says. He stretches out his hand towards his disciples. And he says, here's my family. Here's my mother. Here's my brother. And who is it? It's the ones who do the will of my father. Following his will, following his ways, this is the way you self-identify as a Christian. This is where you demonstrate to the world who you are and what's true of you. And that the defining thing is not your, uh, your paternity, who your parents were, or your geography, or your gender, or your race, or your occupation, or your achievements, or your education, or your financial status, or your chosen pastimes. The defining thing is who does the will of his father. These spiritual bonds, they run deeper than the physical bonds. And notice he says, who is doing the will of my father? But notice in this specific story, what is the will of the father? The will of the father is that they're sitting at his feet learning, listening. He's speaking to them inside and his family is actually outside. You know, this is a parallel story to Mary and Martha. 
In Luke, if you know the story of Mary and Martha, Jesus comes over to their house and uh, Mary is all concerned with all of the logistics to make sure there's the proper hospitality for the event. And she's doing all of these things. And then Martha's just sitting at Jesus' feet listening and she gets upset. Like, tell my sister to help me. She's not helping me. I'm I'm carrying the whole weight and burden. And Jesus says, no, uh, only one thing is needful. And she has chosen the better part. And she's sitting at his feet. So what does it mean to actually do the will of the Father? This is what it means to be in his family. You think there's a whole host of different ways where we can learn what does it mean to do the Father's will. That's what the whole Gospel of Matthew is all about. The Ten Commandments are a wonderful distillation of what it means to love him with all your heart. Versus, you know, commands one through four. I love your neighbor as yourself, five through ten. One of my favorite frameworks just to think through, right, what does it mean to follow the will of the Father as the Lord's Prayer? You walk through it. The first three petitions tell us what it means to love the Lord. We are committed to honoring his name, expanding his kingdom, doing his will, committed to those things. And then what type of uh, kind of culture do you create when you're committed to these things? You're, you're generous in your hospitality because you give us our daily bread. You're, you're looking for a relational reconciliation. You know you've been forgiven, so you extend forgiveness. You know that you need him, so you ask him to help you not be led into temptation so you don't fall, but you stay faithful and you know that he'll deliver you from all the sins and trials and difficulty. So how do you get here? You know, such an interesting phrase. I'd never thought about this before, but Gregory the Great, who was uh, 6th century, he was kind of designated as one of the, as the, maybe what could be considered in history the first pope. And he said, this is the climax of discipleship to become Jesus' brother and then to become his mother. Who are my brothers and who are my mothers? So, you know, we become Jesus' brother by faith. We become a joint heir with him. And he brings us into his family. And we're joint heirs. And now we've been adopted as, as sons and daughters of, of his father. But he says you can become, how do you become Jesus' mother? So the way you actually become Jesus' mother is by the Spirit dwells in you and you bring to bear, you incarnate, you bring to bear the life of Christ in your world. It says you can become Jesus' mother when you stand and preach his gospel and you bring the life of Christ into the world. You can be Jesus' mother when you evangelize and share your faith because you're bringing Jesus into the world. You can be Jesus' mother when you demonstrate his character and are conformed to his image and you bring the words of Christ and the ways of Christ into your world. And that's what it means to follow him. And to be a part of his family. So, you know, one of the you know, shocking things here is Jesus, in one sense, he doesn't come just to praise the family. He comes to redeem it. And you know, even the worst families can still be places where we find hope and security and relationships that uh, can be stable. But the highest glory of the family is when it gets liberated to be put in this proper place, which is as a demonstration and declaration of who he is. So think about, just as we kind of close, just think practically for a few moments. What does it mean to have kind of Christ at the center of your family? What does it mean, you know, kind of the cliche, you put God first. What does it mean in your family to put God first? What are the things that you have to battle with to keep him in his proper place? 
You know, on the one hand, it depends on the age and stage of your family. So some are just in a season where life is just so busy and not by any intentional design or desire. He'll just get squeezed out because all of the the energy and the activities and the entertainments of life push him out. Or some we can withdraw. We can withdraw into our own little cocoon and bubble. But, you know, a godly family will resist this and find ways to focus on on reading the word and singing together and praying together. And one of the things, you know, one of the most helpful tools that we we have is our little Fruits of the Spirit booklet we made for Trinity Kids. And sometimes it's the best we can do is try and pray through one of those. It doesn't take any more than five minutes, but just pray that the Lord will will embody, uh, that we'll embody those fruits. But how can you keep him first? Or think about just kind of your goals and structure as a family in general. You know, oftentimes we can kind of withdraw into our own little worlds, but think about the primary spiritual family means that we're opening it up and we're inviting the fatherless in and the widowed and the lonely. We're bringing them in as well. You know, I think one of the great challenges and opportunities of being the church in this community is no one really is from here. There are hardly any, you know, almost everybody's family is somewhere else. So what does it mean to be the family of God when you don't have your biological or natural family with you? What does it mean to be there? What does it mean to be in a context where you fear the family is being eroded or broken down? I was at a meeting on Thursday with a group that's planted, um, they planted part of a network uh, that has planted right now 12 different predominantly Hispanic churches in the greater Orlando area. It was really interesting talking to the pastors because they said most of the kind of folks who uh, come to their church are first generation uh, or, or immigrants or first generation Americans. And asked, what's the like, what is the biggest challenge? What is the biggest you know, source of kind of fear and anxiety? And across the board, every one of them said, we feel like the family's broken. It's broken here. It's like we came here looking for economic opportunities. But what we found is relational brokenness. And so we're so scared that our families are going to slip into that brokenness. He says, but that's a great opportunity. What does it mean to have the church rally around and say, this is our family? And you, know, you think about it, godly families can demonstrate to the world some of the substantial healing that comes from the sorrow of sin. I mean, probably everyone in this room has been wounded in some way and seen difficulties and hardships from from families. And then there's some people who have never experienced a home that's not an explosive war ground. They've never experienced a home where there's not tension and yelling and coldness and selfishness and all ended in brokenness. And so what does it mean as a church to live out a family where you can bring people in, where they can see a model of at least attempted love and respect and affection that maybe they've never seen any before? It's a great opportunity. As we think about this, also kind of the last to conclude, it's also really worth thinking that you know you can be tempted in hearing this and thinking, all right, this is only the context of like the nuclear family of like husband, wife, kids, and uh, so if I'm single, you know, where what role do I play? Where do I fit into this? And it's worth remembering, Jesus was single. This is a single man talking about what it means to have and be a part of the family. And, you know, for Paul and for Jesus in this world, you know, the commitment, they made a self-conscious, intentional commitment to singleness and celibacy. And the whole challenge with that is that you were giving up your heirs. Your line was going to end. 
But one of the things he says, he's, or Paul pushes us, you choose this for the sake of the kingdom, that you can be radical in how you serve and how you give and how you love. So as you think about it, these different things, like why do families matter? Because this is a natural habitat you're meant, to, you're meant to grow, you're meant to flourish. This is the habitat that humans flourish in. So what should their focus be upon? It's a learning community where you learn what it means to be loved and to love and to live well. And who's all in the family is everyone who comes to his table by repentance and faith. So every week we practice the Lord's table as we're reminded this is, this is the family table, the family gathering where we come. So before we do, though, I want to pray for these. Uh, let's pray for these different things and pray for ourselves in those, those places. So, Lord, we thank you for the gift and the opportunity, the, the summoning to your table, the opportunity to be brought into a, a family where we can learn what it means to be loved, where we can learn how to live. And so we pray right now, we ask, uh, we pray for anyone who feels uh, inadequate and weak, that they haven't done a good job of, of loving Maybe they've fallen off the track on the, the, the discipline side, but haven't loved well. We confess that to you. And we confess maybe those who we recognize that we've tried to love well, but haven't been very well ordered or very well disciplined. We ask that you help us. We ask that you help us to know and to experience what it means to be loved well. The type of love that we, we experience from your son who gave himself up for us. And then we ask that you help us to be able to express that to others. We ask that you help us to know what it means to live well. We confess we live in a world that's just marked by just abject folly. And we don't know how to live well. So we ask that you help us to know these things. We pray for our families. Pray for everyone here. I pray for anyone who's come from a difficult, broken family and they carry those wounds with them pray that you would uh, restore and renew and heal. And we thank you for the tremendous promise that that family is not supreme. It is not ultimate. It can be put in its proper place and that we can be brought into your family where we can be loved by a father who loves well and disciplines well. And then we pray for everyone who uh, comes from a family and we give you thanks. We give you thanks for everyone who's come from a family that was healthy and whole and they tried their best to, to do as best they can. We thank you for those and make us the kind of people who are grateful, grateful for the blessings we've received, grateful for the hope we've encountered, grateful for the ways that people, uh, our families attempted to love us well and provide for us order and structure. And all this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. You know, the Lord's table, this is the Lord's table where he welcomes you into his family and is for anyone who's repented of their sins and they're trusting in him. And on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he, he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you, for my brothers is broken for you. So take in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup represents the wine. It's wine that represents my blood that's been shed in the new covenant. It's shed for the forgiveness of sins. And it's the forgiveness of sins that brings you into this family of healing and wholeness. So take in remembrance of me. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this week, forever and always. Amen. Go in peace.